Open your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 29. We're picking up in verse 31 this morning. Genesis 29, 31. Genesis 29:31 When the Lord saw that Leah was hated he opened her womb but Rachel was barren and Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben for she said because the Lord has looked upon my affliction for now my husband will love me She conceived again and bore a son and said because the Lord has heard that I am hated he has given me this son also and she named him Simeon Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time a husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she, then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she named, called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you take your word today? And teach and instruct our minds. Lord, penetrate our hearts with your word. Make it, uh, make it effective in your purposes. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated.
Well, if someone asked you the question, what are your deepest desires, how would you answer that question? My guess is that if you're like me, you would probably have answered that differently at different points in your life. I think my deepest desires as a younger person have changed. They're different today, and I imagine that they will continue to change at some, some degree or another. And it shows us that we're constantly learning about ourselves. We're constantly understanding more about ourselves. We're constantly understanding more about the world around us. And as believers, hopefully, we're continually growing in our understanding of who God is. And that worldview then shapes how we desire things. I remember as a, as, as a, a young adult, wanting to desire to be holy and recognizing that that desire was not in my heart as I wanted it to be. I wanted to want to be holy, particularly in times spent in God's Word or in times of corporate worship. Like, I really wanted to want to be holy, and yet I didn't, I knew my desires were different. The things that took my attention, the things that captured my affection were different. And so hopefully as we look back in our lives, we can see that growth in grace where God has led us in our desires to grow in what we really want. Now, if we took a survey at large and asked people across the board, what is your deepest desire? I would guess that near the top of everyone's list, we would see something along the lines of to be loved and accepted. Would you not agree? I mean, that, that is, a, that is a, a primary desire that everyone has. Now, it gets worded differently. I mean, someone might say, I want to be famous, but isn't that kind of the same thing, that you want to be known, that you want to be adored, that you want to be loved and accepted by others? Um, we want to be wanted. Another common answer I think we would see at the top of people's list is we want our lives to, to matter. We want the, the breaths that we take, the moments that we live, the things that we do, we want them to matter. We want to make an impact. Some might use the term, leave a legacy. And in that idea of wanting our lives to matter or wanting to leave a legacy, we can see this, there's something inside of us that longs for eternity. I mean, you see this in the fact that we, want our, we, we don't want our lives to end. I mean, people go to great effort and length to extend their lives But we also know from Scripture, Ecclesiastes 3 tells us God has put eternity in man's heart. And so even our desires reveal that we recognize we were made for more than this, more than this world that we're in, more than the world around us, more than what we see unfold. We were made for more. We could list a lot of other things. We could uh, imagine that uh, in that list would be uh, happiness uh, or no suffering, uh, we would see probably in that list a desire for uh, for freedom. Uh, not we don't want to be under anyone's rule or obligation. Well, in our t- text that is before us today, we see some deep desires that emerge among the characters in this story, and these desires lead them to control, take control, to try and um, get their way or get what they want, and of course. It leads to some real messes. You know, I've been familiar with the stories in Genesis, but there's something about going through this in a study that has struck me with, oh my goodness, how much more dysfunctional can things get? 
I mean, even as we reread the text, or I reread the text this morning, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so messed up, this family. Oh my goodness. And we can look back and see how it just started off on the wrong foot. You know, it started off the way things ought not be. Jacob was tricked by Laban. He gets Leah without knowing it as a wife first, and then Rachel. And so bigamy is, 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 right, is in there right from the beginning. This is not God's plan for marriage. We see in the opening chapters of Genesis, we've looked at this already, God's plan for marriage is what? That the two might become one flesh. We weren't designed to be married to multiple people. And yet we see even God's people practice these things in Scripture, and it always leads to a mess. So right away, things are off kilter. And then that's magnified by the fact that Jacob loves Rachel, and he doesn't love Leah. In fact, in this text, we see a couple of times that she's hated. It's much stronger language, and that's not a, an English misrepresentation of a word. That's really what the word means, that she's despised, that she's hated. Jacob hated Leah. And this is not how a husband should respond to his wife, even though it's already a messy thing. And so then we see it magnified even more in that Leah is successful in having children and Rachel's not. And so these deep rifts and deep divides are only increased, and it's just another big mess in the family of God. Well, as you might imagine, studying that, that this week and watching the news and the world around us, I couldn't help but think of our own messes. The fact that we live in a messy world that's affected by our sin. That it emerges in so many different ways. When we think about the problem of racism in our country, it doesn't take us long to realize this is not unique to us. The problem of racism is not unique to America. It is a problem that is around the world among people. I've traveled quite a bit, and I've seen this among peoples from every continent that I've been on. And even this past week, we saw friends of ours who were neither American nor black nor white write about racism and the experiences that they have had in being mistreated and the injustices that they have experienced. And so this whole idea, the injustices that we see in this family is an occasion for us to think about who we are. And fundamentally who we are, and we need to understand this as Christians, is we are all descendants of Adam. We are all, in effect, one race, the human race. Yes, there are different ethnicities among us, but we, there is no more inherent value or worth based on anyone's ethnicity or nationality or language or any other defining factor that we have. In fact, as Christians, we understand that we're created in the image of God, that he has marked us. In other words, our dignity and our worth come from him not from anything that's, that's about us, either whether it's something that we've accomplished or something that is physically true about us. And so then when we look at this world and we see at this dysfunction, at this mess of our own current day, just as we see in this text, we recognize that it is so easy for people to want to grab and take control and exert to gain power. And this is true of every person. It's part of us because we are sinful. We are sinful and we are selfish and we want our own ways. And this should not be so. As Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we should be marked by the love of God. 
In fact, 1 John 4.20 makes it crystal clear. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's unequivocally clear. (laughs) It is absolutely clear. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so the call for us as believers is to love our brothers and sisters as God has loved us. There's not one ounce of room for hatred. And one of the measures that we can use, I find this effective in my life. Uh, I think it's uh, effective for a lot of people. The words of Jesus when he said in Matthew seven twelve, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. There's a little tool to take with us to determine how we're responding to people when they get in our way, when they annoy us, when they make our lives uncomfortable, or even when they wrong us, to do to others what we wish was done to us. And so if we go back to that original question, And we all admit that near the top of everyone's list is this desire to be loved and accepted. Then the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 12 means that we ought to love and accept people. This doesn't mean that our love will look exactly the same for everybody. God's love doesn't look exactly the same for us. In fact, we're going to unpack that a little bit today because we see in this passage this really distorted view of Man, uh, men and women and how dysfunctional their love is or lack of love toward one another and how messed up that is. We ought to love, though, as God has loved us. Now, I don't think that any of us in this room today, I could be wrong, I don't think there's anyone here who sits in a position of power to change the whole world. Now, I'm not trying to discourage you or diminish your potential, but I just, I don't think that currently right now anyone sits in that position of power. And yet, All of us sit in a position of power to change our little worlds around us. We we can affect change. And I would argue that that is a lot more effective. To affect the change in the relationships that God has placed around us, or even to pursue relationships that maybe we don't have, that we can treat others fairly, that we can show kindness, that we can forgive and not hold grudges. And I would add to that that we can apologize when we sin against someone else. That ought to be the mark of Christians. You know, we talk about faith and repentance being hallmarks of the Christian faith. Uh, but that's not also, not all, always, not only rather directed towards repenting towards God, but when we sin against one another, we ought to be bold enough to go up to each other and say, I really blew it. I got angry at you. I spoke unkindly to you. I mistreated you. I did something Unjust. We ought to refuse judging people based on how others have acted or generalizing people. We ought to love lavishly as we have been loved. Jacob and Rachel and Leah were all trying to grab for power, to control things, to get what they wanted. These deep desires that were emerging were awful desires. Not all of them were bad desires, but they were certainly manifest in an awful way. And God still worked, didn't he? He still worked in spite of their sin. It's, it's one of, what, of some of what we read this morning that, uh, and, and even prayed this morning that even in spite of our sin, God still works to accomplish, to bring everything to its end that he wills. And so, yet when we look at this story, 
we still walk away with this sense of this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way a husband and a wife or wives, I mean, even that's dysfunctional. Just everything about this story, the way that the sisters treated each other, spoke about each other, even the ways that they viewed God was really, really immature. And so this brings up the question, will we ever see things the way they ought to be? Will we ever experience that? And, as, and apart from what I would call appetizers or tastes of glory that we do get to experience in this life, no, not in this world. It won't be until the new heavens and the new earth that everything will be made right. When sin is eradicated once and for all and its effects are removed from us so that there is no more tear or pain or sorrow or injustice or whatever wrongs that we have experienced in life. It's not until then that we will know that. But the only thing that can bring this kingdom that has come and is yet to come, the only thing that can bring this kingdom into people's view, the only thing that can demonstrate it, the only thing that can call people to it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is where our hope is found. That is where we must put our trust is in the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that will, that will demonstrate the kingdom of God in this fallen world. He, we read this this morning. He is our only comfort and I would say our only hope in life and in death. And so may we trust him and follow him as we call others to do the same, walking in humility and showing this gracious and lavish love that has been demonstrated to us. In the opening uh, verse that we look at, and, and we are going to go very quickly. I know I'm already looking at the clock. Uh, we're 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 going to just we're going to have a big overview of this text. There's way too much detail, and yet to break this up wouldn't have really worked. So that's why I'm coming at it a little bit differently this morning. But the very first thing we see is that God confronts an injustice. He recognizes that Leah is not loved, and so he. Uh, responds by opening her womb and closing Rachel's womb. And that's hard for us to understand. I mean, we know that God is love. First John tells us that. We know John 3.16, God loves the world, right? And yet we know that God's love isn't the same. In the, it's not universally the same. What I mean by that is God's love isn't universally saving because there really is a hell, isn't there? There really is judgment. He has poured out his mercy on some, but not on all. And this is, of course, a great mystery to us, but we would have to discard over half the Bible if we turn into universalists, wouldn't we? We recognize that God has set his affection, his mercy. What we have to remind ourselves of when when we start, this is a great mystery, it's hard, but two things that I encourage you to remind yourself of. One is that we all deserve God's judgment. So his mercy is his mercy. We haven't earned it. We didn't deserve it. We're not better because God has loved us. He has poured out his mercy on us in his love for us that we can't even understand. So we have to remember that what we deserve is actually judgment. The other thing that we need to remember about the the mercy of God when we think about uh, just the... the, uh, My brain just totally went blank and now I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, That was not in my notes. It'll come back to me. I'll come back to that. So uh, when we think about God's love, my yeah, just totally went blank. 
when we think about God's love for us, we need to recognize that God's love is, is, is unique. This was the second point. We don't put this expectation upon ourselves. We know that, for example, when you became, say, an aunt or an uncle, or if you're a parent, if you became, when you became a parent, uh, did, everybody expected you to dole out incredible affection on that new little one in your life. Everybody expected it. It would have seemed weird if you hadn't. Everybody expected you to, to give gifts and to give kisses and hugs and all that we do for new little ones that come into our extended family. And in the same way, when we get to the, the other side of life, and we, I, th- I think as we grow in maturity, we, we move from that expectation of our parents doing everything for us to then us wanting to do for our parents. And many of you are in that stage now where you're caring for your parents and you've moved from that expectation of them caring for you to now you care for them. No, what everybody expects that's the right thing to do. But for some reason, when it comes to God, we, we think that he somehow is, is, is to be uh, universal in his saving work. And he's not. So we don't put that expectation upon ourselves. Where do we see these kinds of things? Well, in Isaiah 43, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So here we have this incredible pronouncement of God's love upon his people. A unique love for the descendants of Jacob, for the people of Israel, for God's elect. And yet he says he gives other people in exchange. He mentions Egypt and Cush in that larger passage. And so God isn't a universalist. At the same time, though, we have to be really careful that we don't start bringing our human understanding of love. And it's really hard to do this because, after all, we are human uh, but we don't start layering that upon God because God isn't human. He isn't limited. He's not sinful. God's love is not fickle. His love is unchanging. It never changes. God's love is not born of selfish motives like ours is. It is pure and it is holy. God's love is not tied to our poor performance or our situation. It is everlasting. We're told from before time began, God set his affections upon us. And so we have to go back to who God is, his character, who he is to understand then injustice uh, when we come to whether it's we look at the story of Rachel and Leah with Jacob or we look at our own world around us. We have to come back to who God is. And so we go to passages that tell us what God desires. James 1.27, religion that is that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this. The visit of or, the visit or, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Or Isaiah 117, learn to, learn to do good, seek, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God himself is called in Psalm 80, uh, 68, the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 
And as we read from part of Exodus this morning, Exodus 22, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. There are so many other passages that demonstrate this unique God that has, not only for his children, for his people, but also for those who have experienced this injustice. He mentions the fatherless. He mentions the widow. He mentions the sojourner. But these are categories of people who have experienced this. And you might think, as I do, why doesn't he just wipe it all away? Why doesn't he just eradicate it? We could spend a long time talking about that, but let me just say very briefly, he can and he will. But for now, he sees fit to have created a world in which he allowed for sin to enter. To do what? To demonstrate the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. And we're told in 1 Peter that even angels long to look into that. See, angels can't understand redemption. (laughs) And so the story that is unfolding of redemption in our lives, we're told that angels long to study it. They long to look into it. They long to understand it. Why? Angels who are in heaven find it a glorious thing. Think about that. Angels who are in heaven find it glorious to look into the story of redemption of which you and I are beneficiaries and of which you and I are a part. And so God hears our cry when we cry out to Him, when we suffer or when we've become impressed or when we've experienced injustices. We saw this with Hagar, right? When Hagar was wronged and she wasn't innocent, we remember that. And yet when she cried out to God, having experienced the injustice that she did, God responded to her. We also see not only does he respond to Leah by giving her children, but he also closes Rachel's womb. This is hard for us to understand, but most think this is primarily a judgment on Jacob. We saw last week how Jacob had gone from one who had had this incredible pronouncement over him, in a sense, I call it a coronation, right? He had been given this, this uh, royal inheritance as the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And yet he went on living like he was an orphan. And that's what we see him continue to do. Does he take Rachel by the hand and take her to the Lord in prayer? The only one who can, in a sense, resolve her problem. No. In fact, they have kind of fighting words with each other. It's the same contrast that we saw last week. He didn't respond as his parents had responded when Rebecca was barren. And instead, when Rachel comes to him in verse 1 of chapter 30, give me children or I shall die, we see Jacob respond with harshness. Now this, this command that, that Rachel gives Jacob, I mean, it's problematic from the, from the beginning in the sense of you feel both her hurt and her angst. She wants children so desperately, right? That she, she feels like she's been slighted. And yet at the same time, her comment reveals something that's much deeper. This desire, or I shall die. Now, you may have had that experience of wanting children and not been able to have them. But all of us have had some sense of that experience and that there have been things that we have wanted more than life itself. There have been times in our lives where we felt like life isn't worth living if I can't have this. And when we have those feelings in our hearts, what that reveals is an idol. 
There is something that we worship, something that we want, something that we adore more than God, and that has to be eradicated. The only thing, the only one who can speak to our deepest desires is the one who made us. Jacob's response, am I in the place of God who has withheld you for, or withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And it's a rhetorical question. Jacob's not expecting an answer here, but he is definitely saying something, isn't he? Now, part of what he's saying is true. God is sovereign over the womb. But the way in which he is saying it is completely wrong. It lacks compassion. It lacks care. And it even tells us that they were, that anger had been stirred among them. They were fighting with each other. In a sense, he was shrugging his shoulders and saying, take it up with God. Christians, this is not how we should respond to a hurting person. Take it up with God. He's in control. And we may not say it quite like that. Sometimes it's a little more delicate, but sometimes the same, it has the same effect or our words have the same effect where we don't show compassion or care for another one. The thing that we see with Jacob is that he's just, he's still not leading as he should spiritually in his family. He's still living like an orphan. Well, not only do we see the, the births, uh, the many births in this passage, but we also see a number of battles. The passage almost reads like a genealogy. We've seen a number of these genealogies in Genesis. This one's different, though, because it comes with a lot of commentary. And we don't have time to unpack all of the the names and their meaning, but that's what is significant, is that each of the names are giving, given meaning that is uh, particular to what is happening in the context. You know, we name our children because it sounds cute or it's a family name, or something else. But the the Hebrews named their children because it meant something. There was something going on, and we see that come out. Now, Leah right away has these four sons before it says she ceased bearing. In verse 35 of 29, most commentators believe that wasn't because of barrenness physically, but rather that Jacob simply stopped visiting her, and this was probably at the prodding of Rachel, who was becoming increasingly jealous as Leah had more and more children, and she didn't. But what I want to point out about these first four sons is that these are the, this is the beginning of the tw- tribes of Israel. You recognize those names. So Jacob's name is later going to be changed to Israel, and he, he's going to have these 12 sons. They would form the 12 tribes of Israel. And so here we have the beginning, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Each of the names is taken from either a verb that's turned into a noun, again, it means something, or it's a play on words, which we see a lot of in Hebrew as well. They all mean something. I just want to point out two of the sons. First, Leah is the mother of Levi. This is the tribe that would become the priests of God, the Levitical priests of God. Leah is the mother of Levi. But Leah is also the mother of Judah. And who is the line of the tribe of Judah? Our Messiah, Jesus, came from the tribe of Judah. Leah is the mother of Judah. So it's not from the favored wife in a human perspective who had received all of Jacob's affection and love, but from the one who was despised, even hated, that Yahweh chooses to deliver the promised seed. I mentioned not not only do we see the many births, but we also see these battles uh, they both resort to using their handmaidens to, to bring about more children uh, as if it was like the, it was almost like a sport, like they were keeping score, trying to outdo one another. It's Sarah and Hagar all over again. It's that same story, the competition. 
but it reveals something much deeper in each of their hearts. You see it in Leah's commentary as it grows. At first she says, now my husband will love me. And by the sixth son, she says, now my husband will honor me. Right? Leah is looking for something so much beyond just bearing children. She wants honor. She wants love. And while neither her desire for that nor Rachel's desire to have children at all are bad desires, both of them are revealed to be deep, deep idols. Rachel expresses when she finally has a child in verse 23, God has taken away my reproach. Her identity should have been found not in her having a child, but in her being a child of God. And yet, all of her worth and her identity, all of her thoughts that consumed every moment of every day was in this desire to bear children. God did give her a child, and she even speaks almost prayerfully that God would give her another son, which He did. That's going to end tragically. We'll get to that eventually. Uh, But the focus of this entire section is on not just this genealogy of the 12 tribes of Israel, but the struggle of imperfect people and the sovereign rule of a perfect God. We see that the sisters resort to superstition with the mandrakes, thinking that somehow that will give them the edge. We see them buying and scheming and planning, much like uh, Jacob had done, right? Again, the irony plays out of what he had done to his brother and to his father, what was done to him by Laban. It's the sin just continues to repeat itself. And unfortunately, they are predominantly faithless through this entire experience. And yet we do see little indications of a growing faith, of a seed faith, where they're beginning to acknowledge the God. If you think of Rachel and Leah, where they came from, they came from a pagan land. They were just beginning to know through the marriage to Jacob who Yahweh was. And so we see all three of them growing, but it's still set in seed form They're still so immature in their faith. You see, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, our deepest desires will never be fulfilled apart from the one who made us. This is what Leah and Rachel and Jacob all needed to understand, and it's what all of us need to understand, that all of our longings, all of our desires are wired in us to point us to the one who made us, to draw us to him. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O God. And the heart of man is restless until it's find its until we find its rest in you, or it finds its rest in you. We can't think of God as a commodity. We don't possess God on our own terms. We don't gain Him in some kind of barter. We come to Him on His terms, or we don't come at all. And His terms are that we come empty-handed. With the hands of faith, we receive freely what He's given to us in Christ. He is the sovereign one who has given us our lives, given us every breath that we take, and he's numbered our days. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He has given us both good and difficulty. Matthew Henry wrote, Whatever we want, it is God that withholds it. A sovereign Lord, most wise, holy, and just, that may do what he will with his own, and is a debtor to no man that never did nor ever can do any wrong to any of his creatures. The keys of the clouds, of the heart, of the grave, and of the womb are four keys which God has in his hand and which the rabbis say he entrusts neither with angels nor seraphim. 
the reality of finding our fulfillment in life begins and ends with Christ. Coming to Christ in faith is where the reality of fulfillment finds its origin. Walking with Christ in faith is where the reality of fulfillment bears its fruit. And reuniting with Christ, either in death or in His return, is where the reality of fulfillment will know consummation. That which we only know now in part, then we will know in full. And as we've seen today, God uses less than perfect people to accomplish His goodwill. So there's hope for you and me. As we look at our own messes, as we look at our own hearts, as we peek deep down and see the, the desires, our, our own lives are off, off kilter. Maybe not quite as messed up as Jacob and Rachel and Leah. But God is still at work. He showed Rachel and Leah both grace in this experience. And He showed all of us grace through their story, in particularly in particular through the birth of our Messiah. So just as the story is not over yet for them, we're going to continue to walk with them. The story is not over for any of us as well or any of those we love. And so may we continue to trust the one who rules and reigns over our lives. And as we do, may we love as he has loved us. May we do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. And may we find rest and comfort that he has forgiven all of our iniquity. He has healed all of our diseases. He redeems our life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, drive this comfort deep into our hearts, that you are our only hope in life and in death, that indeed all of our longings, our deepest desires for fulfillment, will never be satisfied apart from you. And so would you lead us to see that the origin of our fulfillment in this life begins with Christ. Help us to see that the fruit of our fulfillment is in walking with Christ in faith and knowing the consummation of our fulfillment in this life will be when we see Him face to face. Lord, we long for that day. We pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, give us eyes to see the needs around us, May we do justly, may we be humble, may we walk with you, showing mercy to others. Give us compassion, Lord. Cause us to love as we have been loved. And Lord, may we be quick to remind ourselves and quick to speak of the hope that's within us, that it is the gospel alone that offers our hearts the only hope that we ever have through redemption. May we be quick to hold on to it and quick to speak of it to others. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.